All right, well, good morning. Uh, my name is Brad. I'm the other pastor here. I normally say I'm one of the pastors here, but like, there's only two of us, so just, <laughs> just simpler that way. Um, well, whether you've been uh, here at the table for a while or you're just dipping your toe in a little water, uh, I want to give a little bit of a summary and, and like review why we're doing book four of the Psalms this summer, because that feels a little bit arbitrary. If there are five, why not start with the first one? Why, why not do the, the fifth one? Like, what is that about? Well, we actually decided uh, a few years ago, actually almost several years ago now, might be more appropriate to say, um, in 2018, that that summer we would start each summer for five years straight doing, <clears throat> going through each book of the Psalms. And it turns out that each of those books have a theme. So in the summer of 2018, we checked out uh, book one, which is really all about, the theme there is, is confrontation, right? Um, it's about the anointed king, King David, and how he struggles against the enemies of God to establish God's kingdom. And so it's, it's very confrontational. There's a lot of tension and, and turmoil there. Book two, which we covered in, in the summer of 2019, is really witnesses um, <clears throat> to the kingdom of God as established by God's anointed. So, so David is, has, is on his throne, and the reign of David is, is there, and yet they're still in the midst of all these, these regional enemies who are still threatening. It's, it's not quite the rosy picture of, of, uh, of, of solace that, that was hoped for. And so book three uh, goes on, and we, we talked about this in, in summer of 2020, which was very well-timed, uh, because the theme there is desolation, and it's all about the defeat of God's kingdom on earth by internal enemies in ways that, uh, or international enemies that led to God's people being exiled into Babylon. And so we go from confrontation to communication to Wit to desolation, and now, book four, our theme is maturation. Maturation, right? In other words, the kingdom, it's about a kingdom that is unthreatened by any and all enemies or circumstances. That's what maturity looks like. It's, it's, it's this beautiful, Psalm 90 in particular is this beautiful uh, psalm that introduces that theme of maturation, but it also kind of summarizes and recasts that theme throughout all of the Psalms before and after, through that lens. It kind of backfills understanding with a far more mature perspective of God's people. And so you might say that Psalm 90 in particular is kind of a big deal. And so let's talk about that. Let's read actually um, and dive into Psalm 90. I want to just look at the first couple of verses here. I'm going to reread this because it describes and makes the statement that God is sovereign and merciful. A prayer of Moses, the man of God, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever had, or you, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In an article for iNews, which is a, a, a UK-based uh, online newspaper, uh, a, a reporter or an opinion writer named Viv Groskup. I hope I'm not butchering that name, Groskup, wrote an article called The Blur. And it was about this kind of unspoken or impossible pressure that she and, and many people she knows are, are feeling to return to normal post-pandemic. She describes the experience this way. She says, it all adds up to an exhausting cognitive overload 
or what academics identified in late 2020 as pandemic brain fog. There are simply too many competing ideas, memories, decisions, and ethical dilemmas for us to manage. Right? This is, what she's describing here is, is kind of a, a social scientific, something social scientists know and behavioral psychologists know, that as complexity increases and clarity decreases, anxiety just goes up. It cultivates more anxiety. And the ambiguity of not knowing what way is up is really hard. It causes us to lose perspective. We, we start to be unable to reason or rationalize, and we just kind of react, and that, that snowballs. But she says also in this article, it, it's, it puts a lot of words to, I think, a lot of our experience, um, that this pandemic brain fog is compounded if we expect or try to get back on the, that previous trajectory we were on before, right? Where we, that, that trajectory where we actually felt like we knew where the world was headed and that not everything, at least, was, was in question at the time. But like she says, that ship has sailed, <laughs> right? That ship has sailed. We turned off that road and are now on a different road that we don't have a map for. Never mind, you know, Google Maps. Now, this psalm, Psalm 90, is, was sung corporately by God's people, by Israel, even though it was written by Moses as an individual but long before the anxiety, sorry, the anxiety, <laughs> the exile, <laughs> not unrelated. Long before the exile took place, um, God's people sung this and had this in book four in particular so that it could provide comfort. Because going through an exile and then returning required a similar shift in perspective that was not a return to normal, nor was it this kind of bootstrap optimism that like everything's going to be fine. No, it's going to be different because it's going to be good. We don't know that. But it's also, but it's more of an honest and persistent wrestling with what the exile, just like the pandemic, exposed as truly and most ultimately important. That's the foundation that verse 1 and 2 are laying out, that God is sovereign and that God is merciful. When it says that, he, it, he, he, that we are his dwelling place, you have been, or we, he is our dwelling place, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, it says. When it says this, it's saying that home is where Yahweh is, and Yahweh is always with his people. Whether you're in exile or not, whether your experience is one of exile or not. I love the way this theologian named O. Palmer Robertson, I mean, you know he's smart if his first name starts with the first initial, right? Um, he says, the nation's exile at the hands of international enemies has become the proving ground of the people's faith in the certainty that Yahweh will do it. By deprivation of kingship, priesthood, temple, and sacrifice, the faith of God's people experienced maturation through forced growth. Gee, if only, if only 3,000-year-old scripture had something to offer a post-pandemic church, right? For us, this, this is really good news because we may feel exiled. We may feel politically homeless. We may feel culturally confused and discombobulated and disoriented and all kinds of other three-syllable words that start with D. But we are never ultimately or spiritually homeless because God has made his home among his people. Now, that might sound a little bit like a pie-in-the-sky 
divorce from reality statement, right? That's a little bit, it's a lot easier said than done. But we got to remember that, that this is where Israel is coming from. Like we, can tra- we, could, we could also translate this word uh, as dwelling place or refuge. And for, for Israel to say, like, this is true of us, on the other side of an exile, despite everything that has been visited upon God's people, the destruction of the temple, the removal of any control, the pressure to worship and conform to idols, the fact that God's people were not reunited and not brought back to the promised land for 70 years. They're saying they're ultimately secure. Now, the pandemic, those two years, two to three years, was the longest decade of my life too. But that's not a generation or more. And we need, that should invite our curiosity that the fact that Israel can say this means that there is something here. There must be a God around here somewhere. And verse 2 makes that extremely clear that God is everlasting after everlasting to everlasting. I love the way, uh, if you're not familiar with the message, um, it's Eugene Peterson wrote this kind of paraphrase of an English translation. So it's one step removed. It's not an actual translation of, of the Bible, but it's like, well, here's the heart of what the English is saying. And he says on this verse, um, he kind of paraphrases as, long before you brought earth itself to birth, from once upon a time to kingdom come, you are God. I just love that line. From once upon a time to kingdom come. Both in our childhood, when we are thinking through the lens of fairy tales and fantastical everything, to the, 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 rea- the awareness of a reality that God's kingdom needs to come and that we pray because only he can do it. When as children and as adults, we can say together, you are God. In some, to say that God is sovereign and merciful is to say that this is his world, but we're not just living in it. We're more than just living in it. We are his to command, but he is ours to enjoy. And I'll, I'll be honest, like, I, I don't think that we normally see these two, those two things, this tension together very often, right? That feels like a paradox for us, but it is the foundation of everything that comes after in this psalm. For example, <laughs> this is really important for the next section, verses 3 through 11, which describe how that we are finite and guilty, right? To modern readers, like if you were, if you were reading the words on the screen and you were hearing Bryce, you would have heard phrases like, for we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our inequity, iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence, right? This language and the repetition in here, It sounds like Moses sees God as an angry judge who is unfairly punishing his people. And one part of that is actually accurate. God actually is angry. And he says that in here. Moses describes that, but not unfairly so. Right? Moses is writing with this very real sense of of deep fault but also a strange comfort that if God is sovereign and he is consistent, then he will be angry at sin. If he is holy, then he will be angry at sin. And yet, he must be merciful because he is our dwelling place. He is our refuge. And he is everlasting to everlasting. Remember verses 1 and 2, right? And this is only reinforced by the fact that Moses is the author. Like, 
whenever you see a psalm that says somebody's the author, that's like really key. It's important context. Because just like you and I would write you know, something, if we tried to write a poem or something, we would be doing so from the context of our experience. And there are hints in this text that Moses probably wrote this psalm toward the end of his life around the time of the events that are described in Deuteronomy 32. I'm going to read a few verses from that chapter real quick. It says, he says this, and this is God speaking to Moses. He says, Go up to this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession. So this is right before Israel goes into the promised land. They're leaving the exile of wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years and are about to cross into the promised land. And this is my favorite part. God says, and die on the mountain which you go up. <laughs> what? And be gathered to your people. That phrase is kind of like, let your, your people carry you out. Let them carry your casket in a funeral procession because you're going to die on the mountain. As Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. Now, let me explain what God is referring to then, okay? Back in Numbers chapter 20, when they were still in, wandering around in the wilderness in their early exile, Right? The Israel, God's people are angry. They're frustrated with God. They're saying, why don't you just deliver us back to slavery? Because that sounds better than what we are doing now. And Moses taking these complaints, including that they're running out of water, to God. God says, okay, Moses, go to this rock, and I want you to just tell the rock to, to give up water, to, to start pouring out flowing water. And so Moses goes back to the people. He goes to the rock. He does what God commands, and then, like a good jazz improvisationalist, he, he adds to that, <laughs> and he hits the rock twice with his staff. Now, it doesn't say why Moses, like in terms of like what he was actually thinking at the time, why he did that, but God says that it was because you didn't believe me. It's because you thought that you needed to add to what I am doing, that you needed to add to my commands and, and do your thing instead of just listen to me. This is kind of in character for Moses, by the way, because we, we first meet him in Exodus. And in Exodus 2, the, one of the first narratives of him as an adult is him actually murdering an Egyptian who just got done beating a Hebrew slave. And so him kind of like going above and beyond in ways that are super self-destructive and not helpful is, is very normal for Moses, okay? But let me keep reading here. It says, okay... Because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. Okay, you don't have to raise your hand, but like that sounds really unfair, doesn't it? Right? It's kind of like God is teasing Moses. Like, I know you really want this. But Moses never actually sees this as unjust. That's the incredible thing. The language of this actually has, is, is a Moses who is humbled, who is mature at the end of his life. Yes, he has denied his heart's greatest desire. He's denied what he'd sacrificed everything to actually help Israel accomplish and spent 40 years dreaming about while wandering around in the desert. And God says, sorry, not sorry. This is really helpful for us 
because what it does is it expose how, exposes and reminds us that our earthly dreams or desires are overrated. Our earthly dreams and desires will always outpace their satisfaction. We've all experienced this. In fact, the Western world would now tell us that to deny desire is violence either toward ourselves or toward others. And anyone who seeks to limit that desire is maybe even an enemy, if not someone who is morally repugnant or evil or wicked. That's been the basis of it. Many of us, um, about 15 or 16 of us, are reading this amazing book by Greg Johnson called Still Time to Care. And Greg, full disclosure, is is a friend and mentor of mine, um, but he's also a celibate gay pastor. And this book is in many ways about his experience and about the history of the church's relationship with the LGBTQ community and that topic and conversation. How do we navigate that? And Greg actually addresses this very complaint that denying desire is violence, and here's what he has to say about that. He says, regarding himself, the biblical sexual ethic is inherently violent to my pride, violent to my delusional insistence that I'm one of the good people, violent to my self-righteousness, violent to my vain attempt to build an identity for myself that will last, violent to my confidence that I know what's best for me, violent to my desire not to need a savior. See, what's being pulled out there is, is how much more aware Moses is than we are of this dynamic and how it applies to us. That this idea that we should maybe deny our desires, that we should obey despite them, applies to every time we have to choose between obedience to our perpetually unsatisfied desires versus obedience to an infinitely satisfying God. This brings us all the way back to this reality that love, like our love life, like what what Greg is talking about here, is not the only thing. It's not the only desire with a honeymoon period, right? A period where at first it sounds, this sounds great. I feel satisfied. This is exciting. I feel content finally, but then it fades, whether we're talking about stability, financial or otherwise, whether we're talking about friendship and community, right? Meeting a new friend that sees similarly as you is really exciting. I think we've all done that a little bit here this morning during the passing of the peace. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but you're both sinners. We sin too. Like if you, by the way, if you're visiting, Bryce nailed it in his announcement when he was saying that like, if we haven't scared you off yet, The hope is that the presence of the gospel has saturated this community such that it's not that the scare doesn't go away, or that the scare goes away, it's that the gospel is made bigger because we all badly need grace. And that is a very different posture within community. But we we have honeymoons with our new job, we have a honeymoon period with recognition or acclaim or praise of any kind, we have a honeymoon period and once our kids are born... Am I right? Okay. Don't mean to project on you, just saying. You see, our desires are a black hole, and I know I'm harping on this, but this black hole is made all the more potent by a culture that tells us not to settle for anything less than their total satisfaction. And here's where our culture is actually right, though. We shouldn't settle for anything less than total 
satisfaction of our desires. The problem is not that we have desires, it's in how we try to satisfy them. See, and this brings us to verse 12, which says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. This heart of wisdom is an at-homeness with God is an at-homeness with God, right? This sounds a little bit like whiplash, and you may be thinking, like, what, what in the world does this have to do with desire? How is this a logical conclusion to verses 1 through 11? But if we read this in light of verses 1 through 2, which says that God is God, God is sovereign, but He is also at home with us, He is merciful, then when it says, teach us to number our days, yes, it's, it's saying we need to accept our finiteness, that we are not God, but it's also Saying that wisdom means to consider what is ultimately important and not squander our finiteness, not squander or waste our finite resources of time, attention, effort, or sacrifice on unsatisfying things that actually won't bring what it promises. The heart of wisdom then is to satisfy our bottomless infinite desires in Yahweh's infinite hospitality. The language of, of being satisfied comes in the next section, which I'm going to talk in a, se- a second, to be satisfied in God's steadfast love. That steadfast love is eternal. It does not end. And so there is no end to the depths that we can plumb to be satisfied by it. It is infinite. And therefore, we need to not be fooled or overly impressed with the ways that life or with the ways of life that claim God-like power to satisfy, but don't. Now, again, I know I'm harping on this, and what does this have to do with maturity? Because if you're like me, you may be expecting this last section, verses 13 through 17, to kind of end with a kind of stoic resignation, right? A coming to the end of ourselves that cares less about our circumstances because we have, you know, we're not supposed to have cares about the world, right? Right? It's so the opposite. <laughs> this is the case, which is super encouraging, right? Now, this is the last thing I'll say before we do our Q&A, which I think we might have forgotten to, to, to describe. So if you have a question, you can text in to the number on the screen, and I'll try to answer them at the end of the sermon before we move into communion. But my last point here this morning, and, and the way this psalm ends, is to describe a maturity that leads to holy discontent and dependence. You read 13 through 17 again. This is, this is how God's people respond to the truths that have been laid out so far. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. See, even, even this is interesting, even the, the, the plea and the prayer that God would satisfy us, not Lord, help us to be satisfied in you. I know that sounds like a distinction without a difference, but what it's saying is it's actually emphasizing that the agency of our satisfaction is in God also. Not just that he is satisfying, but he is the one that can satisfy us, and he is the one that will do it. That is, thank God. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work 
of our hands. Now, this sounds like whiplash compared to the anger and the wrath that blows away God's people in our sin and like, like grass in the morning, right? But it's not. What is beautiful about this is that it is, it, what it gives us is, is a model and a passionate plea to resolve the glaring inconsistency of what it feels like to be too at home in a fallen world and a people in whom God has made his home. Right? I, I love um, another, well, he doesn't have a first initial. His full name is Walter Brueggemann, so it's, but with a name like Brueggemann, that kind of makes up for it, right? He's clearly intelligent. He says about this, he says, for these final verses are a vigorous complaint. I've had a vigorous complaint with my wife before. It didn't sound quite this poetic. Um, it is like being glad to be at home and then immediately announcing that the home is not adequate and there is need for a serious transformation of things. I've also said that to my wife. No, I have not. I'm smarter than that. Being confident of God does not lead to passive acceptance. It leads to a vigorous pressing of the issues, an insistence on transformation that can only be wrought by God. Still in the midst of the disorientation, this persistent faith does battle toward newness. This persistent faith does battle toward newness. Trust in Yahweh leads to a zealous insistence on change, and the change is wrought through a lament. I did not see that coming in here. Right? And it's, it's beautiful the way this passage ends. To say, not just once, but twice, God, establish the work of our hands. That word establish is, 40, is used 42 times in the Old Testament. Every single time that word is used, it is to describe in some form or fashion a covenant a promise, a commitment between two parties. And out of those 42 times, 36 are about God's covenant toward his people. It is God doing the work, the heavy lifting, the, the, the promise keeping, that he is either initially or continually establishing Israel as his covenant people. What this means, and the way it's Moses is tying a bow on it, is that is appealing to God's covenant faithfulness that the only way any of this can happen, the only way out of this, 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 these circumstances in this world that we have a holy content, discontentedness for is if God does it. And so this, that, that section is not begging, to, like, begging God to return to normal. It's not a stubborn denial to hold on to our best life now circumstances. Like That's not what he's asking to be established. It's an insistent plea that God's faithfulness to his people transform our faithfulness in all of life. Right, another way of saying this is, Lord, make our effort matter because we matter to you. It is on that basis that this plea is being uttered because God is sovereign and merciful. And there's a difficulty with that because we are finite and guilty. But the way that we understand that is God's sovereignty and his mercy actually trumps our finiteness and our guiltiness. And so thus the heart of wisdom is becoming at home with that reality and getting used to it and not being surprised or at least not being shocked that God loves us on the basis of who he is, but being shocked and surprised that God loves us on the basis of who we are. 
And that when we see who we are to him, we find comfort instead of surprise. And that is the process of maturation. A maturation that leads to holy discontent and dependence. Wash, rinse, repeat. So in sum, this, what it means to have a heart of maturity. What is the heart of the maturity? It is, it is to so anchor our satisfaction in God such that his faithfulness transforms ours, that his at-homeness with us makes us at home with him. So that's where we're going in Psalm 90 and for, and for book four of the Psalms, and that's where we're gonna be in the summer, and we're gonna explore all of the various facets and beauty of that. Cool, huh? Okay, let's see if we have any questions. We do not. Brad, there are food trucks. Let's stop. And, and, and we're hungry. No, that wasn't actually texted in. But you could have. It's fine. I'm not, it's, it's cool. Um, one of the things that, uh, when I think about what it means to be at home with someone, to be at home anywhere or with any people, is hospitality, right? Hospitality is kind of a thing for us as a church. With a name like the table, we better be consistent with that. But what that is actually a reference to and what's being described here, and the reason why parts of this psalm in particular might be a little bit difficult and, and push back and challenge us, is that typically, in, in, at least in the American context, we typically see God in one of two ways. Right? We see God as a healer who, um, who is here for us to fulfill and satisfy our desires, to heal and bind up our broken limbs and our, the brokenness of the world, to comfort us in the midst of, in the midst of a fallen world. And that's true, but some of us also see, some of us instead see him as a judge who is not just in it with us, but is distant, and he judges from a distance. And he's holy, and he's good, and he's righteous, and man, it, we need that compass, and that's where the emphasis is. And you may be asking yourself, well, Brad, which one is it? And you might be even thinking to yourself, well, of course, he's setting up a false dichotomy, so it's both. And you're right, but the way that those two things are reconciled is that God is a host, and that's why the name of this church is The Table, and that's why we do communion every week. And that's why when Jesus was with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, he said, this body, this bread is my body. It is broken for you. It wasn't his home that he was, that he was doing this in, but he was at home with his disciples. Likewise, he took the wine, and he poured it out, and he says, this wine is the blood of the new covenant, and in shedding it, I am establishing you, my, my people, as my church, my body, my bride, and nothing can threaten it. The gates of hell can't stand against the church and the kingdom of God, because I have made my home with you. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine... You proclaim my death until I return. You proclaim the promises of God's faithfulness such that he nourishes us as much as bread and wine nourish our bodies. He nourishes our soul so that we can kind of just get used to being at home with him because we're going to be at home with him for a long time, eternity even. So if that is, if that is your hope even a little bit, come and eat this bread and drink this wine. We have gluten-free and uh, bread, and it's actually tasty. It's not like most gluten-free bread. 
Um, we also have wine and juice, both if you prefer either one. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have so made yourself at home with your people that the two metaphors that you use to describe the church are your bride and your body. You so identify with us. We are equally, you are, you are us, we are you, and yet we are cherished by you at the same time. Lord, I pray that that truth, that beauty, that love would nourish our souls and our hearts that they would, such that it would transform us from the inside out. Lord, we thank you for these things. We pray all this in your name. Amen.